0: Welcome to the Mount Vigil Podcast. I'm Anthony. In today's episode, Blaine and I talk about apocalypse. The word, the genre of literature, the spiritual event, we attempt to develop a nuanced, robust, rounded-out sense of apocalypse or revelation that is grounded in the fact that ultimately the good news of Jesus Christ is what is revealed to us in an apocalypse.
1: We know that if we were to read our time rightly, we would have to read it in love. We would have to read it according to Jesus. We have to read it in kindness and long-suffering and willingness to serve enemies.
0: We hope you find encouragement, comfort, and good counsel in a subject that, when mistreated, can often cause dread, anxiety, and misguided action. Apocalypse is a challenging subject. You may have a lot of baggage associated with it, but with God's help, we think we can confidently navigate this terrain Toward the goal of union with Christ.
1: I realize that we should have said last time because we haven't said anywhere that this is a bi-weekly podcast or a. Semi-weekly. We're aiming for every two
0: weeks on dropping on Thursdays.
1: For a person who likes words like myself, it's embarrassing that I still cannot get that straight: bi versus semi. Yeah,
0: I, I'm shocked by that. Sometimes the, the gaps in your vocabulary are delightful. <laughs>
1: I feel like sometimes the gaps in my whole understanding can surprise uh, even the closest of my friends.
0: Yeah, so today we're talking about apocalypse. The word, the category, the genre of literature, the big set of considerations. And uh, depending on your background, you might have 10 different listeners to this podcast, might have 10 different senses of, of what it would mean to listen to a podcast episode about apocalypse. But we hope by the end of this... That you're not only able to use that word in multiple ways with nuance and with a mature understanding as a person that carries the story of God of how to use the word and how to have your imagination shaped uh, correctly, we hope, uh, around it.
1: Yes, we do know that it is a, shall we say, sensitive subject. I mean, I cannot have a conversation about apocalypse, the field of study, the genre of literature the event, the verb, without being asked, do I need guns and crypto? Just at the very beginning, just tell me what I need to buy or how I can be safe. So I thought maybe we could answer that at the beginning, Anthony. If we were just to cut to the chase here and say, so you're talking about apocalypse, just tell me, do I need to go get some cryptocurrency and (laughs) buy some guns? What would you say?
0: I would say maybe. <laughs> I would say, what is the Holy Spirit telling you to do? What's the word of Jesus to you in this time? What's your assignment as a member of the church, as a member of a body of believers whose lot is thrown in together? And what is your part to play in serving that, that community? What is your assignment? What, what is yours to preserve?
1: Yes, it's a very... That's a very good answer. And, and I would
0: also say, like, what, what crypto token are you referring to? Because, no, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's a really good answer. And we're definitely getting ahead of ourselves when we say things like apocalypse is revelation or the apocalypse is a distillation of time. So should I buy guns and crypto, friends, is a lot like asking, oh, man, Jesus is the rescuer of the whole world, and I can put my hand up and become a part of what he's doing. Should I buy guns in crypto, though? <laughs> <laughs> I could go, and we answer that question with a complicated set of questions and a big maybe.
0: Yeah, and I think by the end of this episode, you'll have more of a framework for how to go about asking questions. Like, what do I do if it's the apocalypse? If it's an apocalypse, and Importantly, seeking out the answer to that question is the task of Mount Vigil. That's why this organization exists, and it's what we're after throughout the whole course of our work.
1: Yes. So today's conversation, I'm looking at the books that are scattered around the room, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare the audience all of the titles, but, you know, we have leading. Definitely
0: spare them the business titles. Those. I'll
1: spare you the business titles. We've got some Charles Taylor represented here. We've got some awesome awesome theology of uh, the gospel as gift. We have a lot of other odd, hard-to-read books in the domain of Apocalypse, trying to wrap your mind around this concept. So, as the architect of this conversation, Anthony, where should we start?
0: Let's start with a story. A story that exemplifies what Apocalypse is. And it's the story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi. So, During the time of the prophet Elisha, the king of Syria was waging war with Israel. He would make plans for battle and send his men to this and that place to attack Israel. But Elisha would uh, hear an update from God on the enemy's plans. And Elisha would relay what he heard from God to the king of Israel. He would say, O king, send your soldiers to this bend of this creek uh, the the enemy will be attacking there at this time. And so the king would listen to what Elisha said. He would send his, uh, you know, an adequate number of soldiers out there, and they would stymie the enemy's plans, the enemy's efforts to, to to invade Israel. And this happened so consistently that the king of Syria became suspicious, and he called his his generals together and said, which of us is the mole? Who is telling the enemy what our plans are? Because it's beyond the statistically probable that they would so consistently be prepared for our tax. And their general, I'm, I'm not sure why they kept this a secret until this point or how they knew this, but one of the generals spoke up and said, O king, the enemy has a prophet, and God tells that prophet what we're going to do. The prophet tells the king, and the king uh, responds accordingly. The king took that general at his word and said, Okay, fine, go give me that prophet. So he sends out soldiers on a sortie to uh, attack the town that Elisha is in. And overnight, chariots and foot soldiers and horsemen, whoever, are sent to this town. They surround it. And Elisha's servant, Gehazi, steps outside in the morning to see the city surrounded. And he runs to Elisha and basically just goes, Ah. And I I love this word in the Hebrew because it's literally like, ah. Um, So he he screams, he freaks out, and he says, oh, no, Elisha, what are we going to do? Elisha, totally unconcerned, uh, steps outside and says, oh, God, please show Gehazi what I can see. And this is the moment when an apocalypse happens. Gehazi's spiritual eyes are opened. And he looks around and he can see what Elisha sees. And he sees horses on the hillside surrounding, and he sees chariots of fire encircling Elisha. So the enemy uh, the enemies attacking them. were are outnumbered by these invisible allies who are ready to wage war. And this is the source of Elisha's faith and trust in God and his ability to see such spiritual realities is the source of his confidence in this moment.
1: Yes, yes, and I, to jump in... Gahazi is right to freak out. Multiple, there are multiple interesting things going on in this story. You talk about how strange it was that the general doesn't say earlier on that there's a prophet of the Lord who's outwitting their schemes. That's actually the norm. A lot of these generals seem to be fairly cynical, even in a very spiritual time. They're a lot like modern humans, where they know there is a spiritual world. They are constantly trying to pull levers to their advantage. At the same time, they will ignore the craziest things. So a story that happens in this same book is Naaman. And it's fascinating that Naaman is dying of leprosy. You know, it happens right before this event. And it is a captive servant girl who says, you know, there is a prophet, presumably lots of people knew that there were prophets of various gods down in Israel, down in Judah, and that some were famous, but that's pretty normal. When the soldiers show up outside the town, they're totally screwed. I mean, there's uh, ancient Mesopotamian military historian, Juan Pablo Vida, who I really like, who just points out that by the time there are two enemy chariots in the vicinity, things have gotten very, very bad. So to see an entire expeditionary force, terrible. But what happens after, is that the chariots of fire, the the spiritual horsemen, do not destroy the army. Because when Gehazi's spiritual eyes are open, he sees where the event fits in the spiritual story of God's covering. And it's not going to be one more military victory. It's going to serve the function of ceasing hostilities between these two nations, right?
0: Yes. Elisha, instead of calling down fire on his enemy's heads, instead of releasing the, the spiritual horsemen and chariots of fire to go lay waste, he, he does the opposite of what he did for Gehazi. For Gehazi, he said, let his spiritual eyes be opened. For the enemy, he says, may they be blind. And they're blind. And he walks out to meet their commander and says, looks like you're in the wrong place. This isn't the place you're looking for. Follow me. And I don't know how they followed him, by sound, the sound of his voice or whatever. They all held hands and walked in a line. But they follow Elisha, and he leads them right to the foot of the king of Israel. And, and then he, once again, asks for, their eye, for eyes to be opened. And he says, God, open their eyes. And the Syrian army's eyes are opened, and they realize that they're surrounded in the, in the enemy city, and they're done for. The king asks Elisha what he should do, which was a wise choice, rather than just assuming kill them all. And Elisha says, no, don't kill them. Let's have a party. Make a feast for them, treat them well, and send them on their way. So they do this. The Syrian army returns home. And the story ends with, they attempted no more raids against Israel. It's beautiful.
1: That is very epic. It may play directly to the guns and crypto question as well. (laughs) So that's an apocalypse. A person's spiritual eyes are opened. Hit me with a few more examples. Where else does this happen? What function does it serve?
0: Maybe my favorite story of an apocalyptic moment in the scriptures is the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul, on his way, you know, in, in the midst of uh, persecuting the church and so on, a very famous story, he encounters Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and he is blinded. That's, that's, uh, I, I'm just now drawing the, the symmetry there. He's blinded in this instance, and uh, that's where he meets Jesus and begins his road to conversion. It's a beautiful moment of apocalypse. The, his, he, his, his spiritual eyes were darkened. He could not see that the Christians were, were the, the, the receptors of the good news for Israel. And then in that moment, he encounters Jesus. His spiritual eyes become opened even as his physical eyes are darkened temporarily.
1: It is a very fascinating story. If we can take a little dive, that I think is very interesting. The word apocalypse means revelation. It comes from uncover. It describes someone's spiritual eyes being opened. There's a really interesting history, though, that sort of fleshes out the concept that maybe I'll just touch on briefly, which is that there's a, there's a really good entry in the 1906 Jewish Encyclopedia, which we will link to in the show notes, that points out that the word apocalypse does not exist in classical Greek. They don't use it. So the, you know the, the apo is to remove. They just took the Greek word for cover and then attached that prefix to it. Now, it was really interesting is that we get the word apocalypse because Alexander the Great did what he did, which was conquer all of Mesopotamia, overthrow the Persians in the early 300s, like 320 BC. And the reason that that matters is because the language of commerce becomes Greek, so Jewish scribes translate... The Jewish texts, the Hebrew Bible into Greek, we get the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Well, they have all of these Jewish slang terms, these old Hebrew slang terms that they have to come up with a phrase for. And like um, your eyes opened, your ears opened, an opening of the ears, and these are moments when a person becomes receptive to God's plan. I think the most significant instance of this is in the book of Numbers uh, 24 verse 4. This is where Balaam is going out to on, under the orders of the king of Moab. He's going to curse Israel as Israel is on its way into Canaan. God tells him not to and Balaam says this aloud. He goes, this is the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, whose eyes are opened. Mm. Now, to convey that idea in the Greek language, they took the word for cover and then just made it uncover. And so it was, who falls prostrate, who is apocalypsed whose eyes are apocalypsed. It happens other places too, like uh, Proverbs 11, verses 13 in English is a gossip reveals secrets, but a trustworthy person keeps counsel. Uh, Translating that out of Hebrew into Greek, they made it a gossip apocalypses secrets, uncovers them, Mm. discloses them, but a trustworthy person keeps counsel. So you have this use here of the idea, spiritual eyes being opened, related to an uncovering. In Amos three seven it goes, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Again, when that gets translated into Greek, the word revealing becomes the word apocalypsing. The Lord does nothing without apocalypsing his plan to his servants who are the prophets.
0: So perhaps the greatest apocalypse in history is the incarnation. The the mystery that was hidden until the right time, hidden for ages. The great mystery of God's whole story of how he would rescue mankind was apocalypsed, was revealed, was unveiled in the person of Christ. God um, becoming incarnate and coming to announce the, the arrival of the kingdom and the good news.
1: Yeah, he's literally called the apocalypse of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So in Luke... Two, verse 32 at the end of a little poem. It goes, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Those are both assigned to Jesus. He's the apocalypse of God, the revelation of God to the Gentiles. So what you're saying, what we're saying here is that apocalypse climaxes, revelation climaxes, and the great climax is Jesus and his work.
0: And if you come away from this 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 episode with nothing else, or if you don't listen to the whole episode and end it here, the most important thing we could say is that Jesus is the revelation. The 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 like fundamentally at the bottom of this conversation, what is apocalypse? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the revelation, and um, Paul ends the book of Romans in this way. He says, "Now to him who has power." to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ. According to the apocalypse of the mystery, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all nations, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. The apocalypse is the good news, the good news, the revelation of Jesus Christ to mankind. Now you know what apocalypse is.
1: Yeah, hugely important point that an apocalypse is a revelation. It's where your spiritual eyes are opened to see things according to Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. He shows you God's plan. And that's important because as a side note, it's possible to open your spiritual eyes apart from Christ. That's not going to give you trustworthy revelation. I think one of the examples, you know, is the story of Saul and the medium where they call up the ghost of Samuel. Now, he uses alternative power. He doesn't go to a prophet. He doesn't go to God directly. He goes to a witch to communicate to the dead. And you could say in that event, he, his spiritual eyes are opened or he is allowed to see spiritual reality. It does nothing new for him. Samuel gives him the same message that he gave him in the beginning, rebukes him, and then vanishes again. Mm. And
0: it doesn't produce the fruit of belief.
1: Exactly. And it's possible to be deceived by quote unquote spiritual awakening too. So we have to we have to set up, you know, handrails around this reality, which is Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the apocalypse and when you experience an apocalypse a time of spiritual unveiling it has to happen through jesus or there's there's every probability that you will actually be deeply deceived because there are lots of other powers both human and spiritual who would like to again thrown up quotes here open your spiritual eyes Mm they want to deceive you. They want to show you a different kind of enchanted reality. Because it's not read in belief to Jesus, it's not going to help you no matter how many of its features may be real.
0: This is such an important point, and it's timely. Um, People throughout history have been seeking revelations in ways that are rebellious against God and, and that are to their destruction rather than receiving the revelation of Christ. But... I think we've already said this on this podcast, and we'll talk about this probably the entire time, that we're in a season in which people are increasingly seeking uh, spiritual revelation by means other than the gospel. And this causes great harm, it opens us up to spiritual torment, it, it destroys our souls and our bodies. It looks, like, uh, it looks like lots of things. It looks like, well, one stream that's increasingly less fringe than it sounds like, for instance, is, uh, let's say, ayahuasca the more more people <laughs> yeah this is being more,
1: advertised on my dr Bronner's soap bottle
0: yeah it's, it is astounding that something that properly should be extremely fringe is now uh, a popular term ayahuasca you know if you're if you're if you're a wealthy startup type you're probably going to at some point this year take a flight down to South America somewhere and connect with a shaman who's going to uh, guide you through an ayahuasca trip to meet your your spirit guide. These things are, and the stories that you hear about what this is like, is uh, are terrifying. My own experiences with experimenting with this kind of thing was so destructive, it took years of healing and processing with God to feel restored in those areas. So to be clear, we're not recommending such experimentation. And when I refer to my own experience with it, talking about a time when I was not allegiant to Jesus, estranged from Jesus and the church, uh, seeking desperately to find some sense of meaning, of story, of truth, seeking revelation that my soul craved, and doing it in ways that were destructive. What's a more common way that people are seeking seeking apocalypse, seeking revel- spiritual revelation in ways that destroy them?
1: That's a good question. I want to get to some of these when we talk about other dimensions of apocalypse, like the fact it's a genre of literature, that it is, in fact, a kind of event. But things to know about are that all efforts to see transcendence apart from God are kinds of apocalypse. And it's actually important to watch out for the ones that are presented in materialist terms, in non-spiritual terms, because those people are telling you the least amount of truth. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters called this kind of person the materialist magician, someone who denied explicit spiritual agency, the existence of angels and demons, of God, of Jesus, while affirming spiritual power. And he lists in particular a few things. He goes, communism is very productive along this line. Capital L, Capital F, Life Force is very productive along this line.
0: I've got one for you, uh, Sam Harris. He's the paragon of this uh, hardcore atheist, hardcore strict materialist, determinist, and yet he he has a very well developed spirituality that he recommends to people. I think even at times he uses like spirituality language that he would deny. Spirit as such, in his meditative practice, he wants to give you a revelation of like a deep understanding of your own being of reality. He wants um, to guide you into an apocalypse, which he denies is spiritual and yet is profoundly so, and has an ancient heritage in Eastern religion and philosophy.
1: Yeah, just to hit again briefly, communism and Marxism are forms of apocalypse. It's fascinating. If you dive a little bit into the historicism of Marxism, the historicism of communism linked to Hegel, you actually see a philosophy of reality where an energy drives every historical event. And it's that energy that philosophers and historians are trying to tap into in order to learn the secrets of history as such. It's a, it's a very spiritual thing.
0: So what you're saying is Hegel provides this framework, not that we're going to claim to uh, have him 100% pinned down since no one does, but he provides this framework in which uh, Geist, the world spirit, is expressed or self-realized in culture, iterating throughout history, throughout this dialectic. We'll get into that more later, but the point is that Marx comes along, picks up that spiritual program that's expressly spiritual, And um, in its own way, religious. And he turns it into this purportedly materialist, determinist program that seems acceptable to your average modern materialist, atheist, secularist, and yet is actually based upon this hidden spiritual vision of reality.
1: Yes. Another one that's a form of apocalypse really has infiltrated therapy and neuroscience some domains of counseling, which was why in our last episode, we really hedged before talking about the importance of trauma, of engaging trauma when it comes to recovering your vision of reality. But, and we talked about therapists who were actually linked to a thing called the Somatic Institute, which is a research center for new ways of restoring people. Now, their identification of the problem is extremely accurate. Trauma destroys human beings. Their solutions are so um, worth probing in a more complete way. I wanted to read you this paragraph from one of the founders of the Institute where he was talking about where did this come from? Where did I, where did I discover this new idea to restore people? Quote, As a young adult entering a PhD program in medical and biological physics at the University of California, Berkeley, I had a prophetic dream, which set the arc of my explorations of trauma and the human condition. In this dream, I was walking towards a two-column elevator with spherical entryways. I realized that this was an autonomic ganglion. When I entered into the door, I felt an ominous presence. As I looked around, I discovered that it was the cold, disapproving look of an important mentor I had in undergraduate school. His mechanistic worldview had no room for feelings and sensations, and he certainly would not approve of my new direction towards the study of, quote, life energy. In the dream, I went through the autonomic door, and there was no turning back, end quote. Okay, so this is a neuroscientist and an influential therapist And that is an apocalyptic dream. It's a form of revelation of the real nature, the real spiritual nature of reality. But it's not being obtained through a vision of Jesus. So there's good reason to be wary of it.
0: Someone who is a great advancer of this cause is uh, Tim Ferriss. It's an incredible if you are a Tim Ferriss follower, you maybe started with the Four Hour Work Week. You maybe subscribed to his podcast, and are, we're interested in like, you know, asking high performers, "What's your morning routine? What what supplements do you take? What's, how, how do you life hack this and that?" But throughout the course of his career, he's increased. It's interesting to, just to watch a person develop, and he's increasingly sought after, meaning sought after revelation. And now, you know, every other episode is, has some sort of, uh, in in fact, there was a recent, like, like somatic therapy person, um, as a guest, um, many of his programs are on the use of psychedelics for uh, psychotherapy, which, to be clear, I don't wholesale condemn or approve of, but think that we should consider. Um, It's a complicated subject when you look at, (laughs) well, this, this opens an interesting question, which is, okay, so we should wholesale... Condemn the use of psilocybin in psychotherapy, but you would recommend other pharmaceuticals. Um, and that that introduces the word pharmakeia, which is the word for magic and sorcery in the scriptures. Anyways, total, <laughs> total side trail that I'm not sure we'll actually keep. The point is, Tim Ferriss uh, is a hugely influential person who is promoting uh, this form of of. Uh, apocalyptic, of a of, of revelation that you're referring
1: to. Yes. You don't really want spiritual awakening without the covering that Jesus provides. It's just never been a good idea. Part of the way that we know that is to look at any ancient civilization and to notice that in the complex emergence of priest classes, safety is one of the principal concerns. People want to create a buffer between themselves and the spiritual world. There are these very influential sociologists, early sociologists, Marcel Mauss being one of them, and they wrote about sacrifice. And one of the things that they noticed about sacrifice in pagan ritual was that it created a buffer zone between humanity and the spiritual world. So it's fascinating when it comes to opening our spiritual eyes to see people in our time dismantling walls that are, in some cases, thousands of years old, that have sort of warned us about interfacing with spiritual realities outside of allegiance to service of love of Jesus. It's just not a good idea.
0: The prototypical story of human beings seeking apocalypse unto their own destruction, we'd be remiss to leave out, which is the story of Adam and Eve and the garden and the the serpent, the, 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 the evil, rebellious spiritual power that was speaking to Eve and told her, if you eat this fruit, your spiritual eyes will be opened. It was true in its own way, and it did happen, but it wasn't the way that God wanted to bring about revelation. So there are shortcuts. There are destructive paths. It's like it's like if you're trying to get down to that river at the bottom of that canyon, there's a trail that you can take with rests and wayfinding on the way down, or you could just jump off the edge. That's, that's an in, incomplete uh, metaphor because there is revelation unto Christ and there's revelation unto death and evil and, and lies and so on. So it's not like it's all... it's not like the only problem is the speed with which you go after it.
1: I want to talk about some of the other functions. I want to talk about why the literature is very important. I want to talk about why the event itself is very important. I think it would be helpful to address a few very legitimate issues that most of the people I know have with Apocalypse the Word, have with Apocalypse the Concept. Take us there. Let's unpack some of the baggage.
0: Well, uh, baggage number one, why why don't we feel happy when we hear the word apocalypse? Why, when we're talking to our friend about uh, apocalypse, does he say, like, wait, 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 you mean, like, the literal apocalypse and, like, the destruction of everything? Why do we think apocalypse is the destruction of everything? Why, why does pop culture see apocalypse the way it does? Baggage number two. I... In preparation for this recording, I I hopped on a news site and just searched the word apocalypse and pulled up some headlines from this week, so within the last few days. We have from McSweeney's, your parenting choices have caused the apocalypse. And they are not saying that in a happy way. Uh, From Barron's, there will be no student loan apocalypse. Uh, An uncharacteristically positive statement, but presumably hoping on the state's Saving uh, ability to prevent such an apocalypse. You have, I forget what publication this was. Rise of the Machine: Experts Warn of AI Apocalypse. From the New Yorker, Should You Have a Baby During the Global Apocalypse? An FAQ. <laughs> From Newsweek. Oh, I
1: want to hear some of those questions. I know, so.
0: right? Frequently asked questions about birthing at the uh, during a global apocalypse. Newsweek. They give us this headline pork apocalypse, question mark. California grocers suppliers seek delay of animal welfare bill. So baggage number three, What about the Christian crazies who use this word? What about the emotional baggage I bear? In, in response to all conversations about end times, about the apocalyptic, about doom and gloom, about you know stories I heard growing up about this pastor told his whole church to go into as much debt as possible because next year Jesus is, is returning and you can turn that money into an eternal reward or, or whatever. Just the endless, the endless stories that I'm sure we all have in our mind if we grew up in the church that make us kind of embarrassed any time we get near this word.
1: Yes. The three are related, and it is so true that We have to talk about why so often people, including our brothers and sisters, Christians, when they think the world is ending, do such uncharacteristic, crazy things. Uh, But the first one first. Why Why do people feel so bad, which leads into two and three, when they hear the word apocalypse, when they think about it. And I think the reason that people feel bad is that we've lost the function of the return of Jesus in the whole storyline of the Bible. Because the apocalypse, when Christians hear it, they think of the return of Christ. They think of a set of images from the book of Revelation. They think of a period called the Tribulation. They think of suffering. They think of an inversion of the usual cosmic order. And to address that one, we'll eventually have to do a deep dive. I think we're planning to do a deep dive into the story of God as such. What kind of story is God telling that's testified to in the Bible, that's revealed by Jesus? What is the Nicene Creed about? Who is Athanasius? Why does he matter? Where are we in time? But I would say we feel bad because we see suffering We see destruction. Those things have become tied to apocalypse, have become tied to the return of Christ. And one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast is to separate the concept of apocalypse from the end of history as such and the return of Jesus. Now, the return of Jesus is an apocalypse. It is going to be very revealing. And it's written about in literature that is revelatory, apocalyptic literature. But they're not exactly the same. So simply to touch on this point ultra-briefly, and I'm going to borrow from the, the father-doctor, orthodox priest, Stephen DeYoung, on this, who, who writes in a very helpful and concise way about that point, the return of Jesus, which is sometimes talked about in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And what he points out is that Images of wrath, justice, and judgment roll together when it comes to talking about the return of Jesus. And to see the return of Jesus rightly, we need to remember what God is doing, which is purifying the world from evil, resetting all things right, like if a statue has been tipped over, he's setting it upright again making all things good again. The problem for humanity is that we are divided. The good and evil that are out there in the world, the allegiance to Jesus and the rebellion, are also in us. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. It's, it's one of the main thematic arcs, is the purification of the world, the purification of humanity. And that's described as being pretty uncomfortable. And I can say that that is true. It can be frustrating when people talk about the purifying effects of marriage without talking about how awesome marriage is. But it's true that having to love a person is very hard on everything in me that's not loving. Having to be humble is very hard on my entrenched and very real pride. Having to be forgiving is hard on my anger, right? Everything in me that has to die that is harming me, that does not want to, is causing me pain as it dies. And so when we talk the day of the Lord, the revelation of God is when Jesus comes back, this is the final moment of purification when all of the rebellious spiritual powers will be judged. The the taint of sin will be washed from God's world forever. And we actually get to do some of that in advance, you know, in anticipation of that. We get to be a part of that in real time in our allegiance to Jesus. But the day of the Lord is not a doomsday scene. It is not massive destruction. It's not cities on fire. It's much more like this description uh, from Stephen DeYoung, from his book, The Religion of the Apostles, rewrites Although the Old Testament passages can present a rather horrifying account of the Last Day, they also contain important images that illustrate the nature of God's wrath. The first of these is fire, specifically one that tries and tests, purifies all things. The fire has different effects depending on the kinds of people it tries. For some, the fire of God's wrath is destructive, consuming them utterly. For others, it is purgative, allowing them to emerge from the day of the Lord, purified as gold from the dross, cleansed from the stain of sin and transgression. This latter group are those who are justified, made righteous, or made just. Rather than being consumed along with their sins and wickedness, they are purified from them as though through a refiner's fire. This burning fire is rightly described by Scripture and the Fathers as God's wrath. Undergoing this fiery trial, regardless of which result it brings for a person, is judgment in its biblical sense. Mm. Judgment to be tested and to go, okay, so... This God who is slow to anger, incredibly merciful, incredibly kind and desirable, who loves you, is going to come back and remove evil from the world. That is such great news. Now, it's freaky when we see, as I said, that evil is also in us. However, it's sort of a relief to know that actually part of what God is doing right now in raising us to maturity is restoring us from evil, cleansing us from evil in real time. And also that God can be trusted in the last day in revelation to be himself kind, merciful, good, all things. So that yes, though those images are scary, they're also the very thing that we desire. So that's a very long, long, long long-winded Answer just to problem number one, which is why do Christians not like that word? Well, one of the reasons is because it's married to images of violent destruction, which no sane person likes. And it's helpful for us to sort of recover the full sweep of what God is doing to go. Apocalypse. Oh, the moment when God will set all things right. And yes, you can want it to come. Because though you see the divisions in your own nature, you can be restored by putting your hand up to be included in the work of Jesus.
0: All of that reminds me of a book I read by Watchman Nee, whose invocation is neither a wholesale recommendation or rejection of his thought overall. But his book was called uh, The Spirit of Judgment. And I don't know where I found it on someone's bookshelf. I read it in like an hour, and it stuck with me ever since. The The aim of the book is to convince the reader that God's judgment is good. It's good news, and that we should actually ask for it, but in this Lord-have-mercy way in which we hide ourselves in Christ. And uh, ever since I read that book by by me, it's changed the way that I read about the saints in, in the book of Revelation who are calling out to Jesus to come like come set things right come judge evil come uh, restore justice in the world it's or, or or you read the words of the psalmist who's incensed at times and and asking for for, uh, for for judgment to be executed it's not culturally that acceptable that comfortable to pray these kinds of prayers but ultimately it's it's implied in what should be the daily prayer of of the church worldwide, which is come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Lord save, Lord set things right. This is something that we can pray and we can only pray it um, without being suicidal inasmuch as much as we are hidden in Christ and, and covered by, his, by him, by his life, by his work. So another way of saying, why don't Christians have happy associations with the word apocalypse, with the idea of apocalypse, or in this case, with the idea of the return of Christ? It's because we don't believe often. Like so many of the answers of like, why, why this bad thing? It's because of unbelief. And we have lost a, a robust sense of hope. And not not just hope as in, I wish this or that, but this active prophetic intercessory hope in which we know what the promises of God are and wholeheartedly agree with them another reason that we don't feel happy about the word goes to this third point which was like what about the Christian crazies what about this and that story of idiocy or let, let's say uh, <laughs> of foolishness in regards to how we respond to the end times to teachings on it and so on and at this moment, I think it's a great opportunity to perhaps pause this recording and undertake a wonderful spiritual practice, which is the practice of forgiveness. If you grew up in a church in which the story of the return of Christ, the story of apocalypse and so on, um, were, were told in a way that traumatized you, that made you scared, that made you feel um, or that encouraged you to feel glee at the at, at the proposition of people dying or, or or civilizations being wiped off the map, or kind of, kind of you know if you grew up in a church in which any any sort of irresponsible teaching that wasn't fueled by love and by the revelation of Christ, you perhaps might find it useful to pause and uh, to practice forgiveness to forgive those teachers. And a great way to do this is, God, I forgive so-and-so for such and such. I send all uh, debts that are that I feel are owed to me as a result of this wrong. I assign them to you, Lord. You own these debts. And I just liberate this person that I'm forgiving from all uh, sense of what they owe me. And I, I thank you for the gift of freedom that uh, that forgiveness provides me. You'll find that, If you feel like you're just shutting down every every time that you approach this subject, a blocker for you might be unforgiveness, and hopefully this would be a useful practice for you.
1: That's so good. I want you to take us into the second point. Why does apocalypse function in the world the way it does, where it needs no explanation? We all see burnt siennas and oranges and hellscapes, and we know that it means violent destruction in a pop culture sense. Why?
0: Well, first off, I just want to know what your favorite post-apocalyptic movie is.
1: Mm, that's a good question. Uh, my first post, my favorite post-apocalyptic movie is uh, Pride and Prejudice, Anthony. <laughs> Wait, does this not be zombie version? It's all about the revelation of who these people are and an apocalypse. And once that happens, you get the marriage plot. But
0: you disgust me. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking about this question earlier, and not post-apocalyptic, but apocalyptic in the pop sense of the term. I have to admit that I love disaster movies, especially when Gerard Butler or Dwayne "The Rock" Johnson are the hero. And the reliability of the form of those movies—it just like never—it never ceases to delight me. It's typically like this estranged. This dad who's estranged from his family. Um, often there, there's a stepdad who's kind of a putz and typically dies in the movie. Every movie is is using the latest 3D animation technology, et cetera, just to make it more and more vivid and and huge and epic and 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 then this goes wrong and this goes wrong. Anyways, I I freaking love those movies, man.
1: This is good. This is a difference between us because I basically I basically never like those movies. Well, you
0: don't like any stressful movies, eh? I, I, I think you. Uh, you're just too cre- creatively alive wow. and uh, and maybe empathically gifted such that stressful movies just spin you out. Is, is that is that accurate? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, Anthony, what a sympathetic interpretation. Back to the question, why does the world present apocalypse the way it does?
0: I think a a, a simplistic answer, but one that's... Helpful nonetheless, it, it, it doesn't get to the bottom of this question, is simply that the imagery of the book of Revelation and perhaps the first or most kind of prototypical apocalyptic book from the Old Testament, Daniel, uh, so much of that I- imagery is sensational. It's memorable. And in like by, by imagery, specifically the destructive imagery. And so there's kind of a you could, you could in, in other words, provide like a natural, a naturalistic or sociological answer to the question, in which you know this imagery saturates the Christian consciousness, imagination. Those stories get told, they get disseminated outside of the church in irresponsible or decontextualized ways, et cetera. And then eventually, we just have these these pictures, buildings burning, meteorites crashing. Zombies walking the earth and so on. So there's kind of a naturalistic answer to the question, but it doesn't actually answer the the, the spiritual, uh, <laughs> uh, the spiritual question of what's the strategy of the, what, what strategies of the enemy are resulting in this shallow or or dark or gospelless story of apocalypse that the world has. And so, so getting getting beyond like what what's the etymology of the word and how did they enter the popular lexicon and, and become a genre of film and so on. I think simply the enemy, he wants people to be afraid. He wants people to feel scared when they hear about the return of Christ. It's it, like, we could, we, could, we could go deeper or, or try to provide more like complex, nuanced answers to the question, but that's one simple one. It's, it's a really effective strategy of the enemy to make you scared of the return of Christ when actually your comfort on a daily basis, to be like, Lord, thank you, you are coming soon.
1: That is so good and accurate to go, the enemy wants you to fear the return of Jesus. The enemy wants you to feel fear, period, because it's so destructive to human beings. Also, the enemy does not like apocalypse. I think one of, and neither does the world in the biblical sense, a vision of reality with humans on the throne of God determining good and evil for themselves because when the strategies of humanity are revealed in their nature, the results are bad. So in the 20th century, we lived through the fallout, the revelation of modernism. Modernism was a heady intellectual movement that said we can study the patterns in nature and we can make perfect institutions we can make factories that are the perfect way to get work done well factories did not turn out to be the perfect way to get work done they were highly productive but they destroyed people and they destroyed places and the final vision the apocalypse of the project of modernity were the world wars and some of the the largest mass killing ever is a single event called the mass killing under communism, which spans the entire communist project, but to go, I think that we know as people that if we are revealed without being judged according to Jesus and read through Christ, it's going to be very, very bad news. If you told almost anyone right now, strangers are on their way to search your bedroom, and they are going to determine your future based on their findings. No one would feel good, even if it was just a mess. It was like, listen, you're not going to find sordid sin. You're not going to find drugs. You're not going to find anything manifestly bad. You're just going to find you know, dirt and a bed that's not made. And, and, and we know that if we're revealed apart from Jesus, it's not going to be good. So the world hates this category. All those, we're going to see the revelation of artificial intelligence. We're seeing it in our time. And we're, and so these news headlines about AI apocalypses are rightly scared because people are using power that they do not have the wisdom to steward, to create technology that's going to be destructive. And when it's revealed in its nature, it's going to have consequences. I hope they're not dire, though they may be. So it's very natural for a world that is pretty corrupt to dislike the concept of revelation. That's a really good
0: point. So already throughout the course of this conversation, you might have noticed that we're using the word apocalypse in various ways, and we want to talk about that explicitly for a minute because it'll be useful for you as a member of the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and and in your own thought process in working these things out to establish what some different ways of using the word are. So we've already talked about the popular definition of apocalypse, which is something like uh, violent civilizational destruction, or just Breakdown and destruction and decay, things like that. So, that's what most people that you talk to will be meaning when they say the word. And that's what they'll hear when you say the word, unless you uh, take some time to patiently and lovingly and appropriately uh, flesh it out. And th- this includes other Christians who perhaps whose minds are more shaped by, again, popular culture than the ways of the church, which is okay. It happens. So, Uh, Another way that the word is used is apocalyptic as a genre of biblical literature, biblical and extra-biblical literature, but uh, mostly you would be talking about the Bible. Daniel is perhaps the book that establishes the genre in the biblical canon. After that, there are portions of the other prophets that become apocalyptic, and finally there are moments where Jesus goes apocalyptic, let's say the epistles, and uh, and then the whole book of Revelation is an apocalypse. So as a, as a genre of biblical literature, you might say the definition is, this is a influenced by Mackey actually, extended prophetic visions, revelatory about the true nature of things, and they do often have to do with uh, civilizational, societal, cosmic level revelation?
1: I do love Tim Mackey's work on this. He's with The Bible Project. Their videos and podcasts on Apocalypse, very, very good, very helpful. But what's helpful about the genre, apocalyptic literature, that kind of comes into existence after the Babylonian exile, 587 BC, is that God gives a prophet a picture of large-scale reality to help his people understand what's happening to them. So he situates the catastrophe of the exile and the suffering under these pagan nations in terms of the whole sweep of salvation history. So apocalyptic literature uses these, a core set of symbols, stylistic devices, to help a people see where they are in the real story of God. Now, obviously, those symbols are very provocative. Some of them are hard to understand. And it's it's even worth mentioning that most of the apocalyptic literature that exists is speculative. It gets written alongside the canon of the Bible. And it's, it's kind of hard to blame those writers for doing that because the images are so cool. The ability to situate yourself, perhaps, in the story of God is really amazing. So there are lots of apocalypses, most of which I think we'll get to much later when we do a whole episode on Gnosticism as it relates to humanity at the end of an age. But most apocalyptic literature is Gnostic, and it was revealed to a farmer by a genie, but more, of, more on that at another time, to say some texts, the ones you named, some of the parables of Jesus, some moments in the epistles, but the big ones being Daniel, the prototype, major portions of Ezekiel, the whole book of Revelation, are a literary form. And what they do is they show you all of salvation history using Images to convey major beats in the salvation epic to help you understand where you are. And we're going to get more into that maybe here just in the next few minutes, uh, but in the latter part of this show to go, yeah, but what about the book of Revelation itself and maybe some ways to engage the ultimate, meaning the one that comes at the end, apocalyptic books of the Bible but I do. I think there were things that you might have wanted to make sure that we name before we go there.
0: Yeah. So um, just moving on with usages of the word apocalypse, apocalyptic, the adjective apocalyptic. So it describes the genre we just referred to in popular culture. It just means destructive, and for biblical studies, academics. It has kind of a more particular sense, but for for this for our purposes, we'll say um, in the style of apocalyptic literature. And then uh, one of the ways that we're recommending to you is to use the word to simply mean revelatory in the way that creates spiritual enlightenment, the opening of spiritual eyes. Moving on from the adjective usage, we have instances of apocalypse versus seasons of apocalypse. This is pretty helpful because we... Well, it's, it's important for us because we're saying we are in an apocalypse. To say that, we're not saying in this very moment, within the next five minutes, an apocalypse is happening. We're saying we are in a season that is revelatory on many levels. So instances of apocalypse, we already talked about Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus uh, at the Transfiguration is an instance of apocalypse. But the whole the whole uh, duration of Jesus' earthly ministry is a season of apocalypse. It's one long revelation of Jesus to mankind. And that's the usage that we are applying when we say we are in an apocalypse. But we also say that we are in the, capital T, capital A, the apocalypse. What do we mean by that?
1: That we are in the apocalypse. There's not actually... A precise correlative in the Bible, it would say things more like the eschaton or the time when Christ was reigning in the midst of his enemies or the day of the Lord. But what we mean is that we also think that all of the followers of Jesus have been very clearly instructed to think and desire that the return of Christ is imminent and that that will actually provide you with a good way to live the times you are being given to live in, that you will not do anything crazy. You will do productive, loving things, be allegiant to Jesus. But it does take us into the territory of the book of Revelation itself, which should be a 12-part mini-series. Yeah, we
0: are not going to exhaustively cover the book of Revelation here at the tail end of this podcast.
1: But we do want to start building up a toolkit and a familiarity and a set of ideas inside of which you can kind of engage the book of Revelation as it operates in the whole story of God. Because even if we were to do a 12-part series, you would still need some pre-existent, hopefully, familiarity coming in. And It's a really good, fascinating, important book. It's easy to make errors engaging it, but there's life to be found there. So where would you start? Sometimes it's easier to talk about errors than it is to talk about positive pathways. Where should we go?
0: Let's do start with errors. I want to highlight three major errors that I think we often make when approaching the book of Revelation and other prophetic works that we think apply to our future. It will be helpful to start here because it'll clarify some of the things that we say and maybe disarm some of the dismissals to the claims we make. So, the first big mistake that we make when reading the book of Revelation is we assume that there can only be one fulfillment of any given symbol, type, image. So, a very useful symbol to work with throughout these, uh, these errors would be the symbol of 666 which is, you know, perhaps the most famous single typological element of the book. So what this error looks like, assuming that there can, can only be one fulfillment, an example of this error, this error would be, hey, we know that John simply wrote the number 666 as a coded way of referring to the emperor Nero, who was a profoundly evil Roman emperor that was in power. And he did this to avoid persecution. We know this pretty much for a fact. Uh, it's pretty. It's it's fairly well agreed upon by the scholars. Therefore, every person who's alive now and thinks that this number has some significance to them, or and, and they're looking for it in uh, the unfolding of history currently, is ignorant. Those people are ignorant. And if they were more well educated, if they had encountered the most modern biblical studies research they would know better than to look anywhere for this number the only relevance it has to us now therefore is kind of a moral symbolic relevance like there's always empire there are people that rule it and so on
1: yeah these views now have formal theological names and there are a lot of them it's kind of fascinating that they mostly came out of the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s and the 1600s but that one fulfillment view has a name it's called preterism and what's alarming maybe unfortunate about preterism is that it emerged so that the catholic church which by the way hi, our Catholic friends, we really love you guys. (laughs) And I think that that you've actually stewarded major and many important things for the global body of Christ. So thank you for you Catholics who are tuning in. We're not trying to throw mud at one church body here, but to go, yeah, I, I can see the concerns at the time of the Protestant Reformation Luther and others were hinting that Pope Leo X might be the Antichrist, and so to defend itself, some Catholic scholars sort of built these views, preterism and futurism. And preterism, it was Louis de de Alcassar was his name, and he suggested that All of the prophetic symbols had fulfillment in the time frame of the first apostles. And he went, this was just a way of describing the season of the first church. And, you know, the funny thing is, is is old Louis, like you said, he's not totally wrong, but he's not reading apocalyptic literature the way we think that we've been told to read it.
0: He's simply forcing upon us a false choice.
1: Yes, He's forcing a false choice. Was was,
0: was 666 fulfilled in Nero, or will it be fulfilled in some microchip implanted in your wrist?
1: Yes. And, And let's just dive into that one, right? Because where that Caesar, Nero, and beast come in is that letters in Hebrew are also numbers. So you... This happens all over the Hebrew Bible, and it's really interesting. Uh, But to go, so if you write Caesar Nero and write the word beast in Hebrew and then treat those as numbers, they both add up to 666. And it is a way of saying, yes, Caesar is in fact one of these prophetic beasts who you've seen in the book of Daniel and elsewhere, who tramples the church and destroys the people of God. But you can have hope. Because if you're familiar with apocalyptic literature and its portrayal of all history, you know that these beasts don't win in the end. Now, the let's say that the flip side, preterism, is a thing that came about at the same time. Uh, it was mostly uh, Francisco Riberia who came up with this one, and it was like futurism. He presented the same false choice, which was, some of these things were fulfilled in the first century AD. The rest of them relate to a future time. None of them are going to be expressed in our time. And if, to paint this in the best light, by the way, what's positive here is that you do have people trying to take the events seriously, trying to not over-abstract apocalyptic literature. They're trying to say, this does have bearing on your life and your time. But we think that they overdo it. And my little plug here is that it's not, it's not just us, folks. If, if you want a great short book on some of the stuff we're talking about, Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, that's kind of a great one on productive pathways and dead ends, as it relates. But the fruit... Of the productive pathways of reading revelation like you'll know you're reading it rightly when your fear starts to die and you find yourself falling more in love with Jesus that would be a marker of a right way but these these errors aren't the only ones what else?
0: Well that's good I, uh, I like how you are, you were highlighting the positive elements of these views because to simply criticize them would, would be sort of implying its own false choice of there's nothing redeemable here. So one way of journeying with John through the book of Revelation would be to pick up another book, four four views on the book of Revelation. I forget who the editor is, but it's four different biblical scholars with opposing views, laying out their kind of best summary of, of of that of that perspective. When I read that book, I I don't understand why there are four different views. I basically adopt all four of them, leaving out the unnecessary elements that create false choices and and so on. So. Yeah, I guess we're kind of recommending to you an approach here, not simply to avoid the particular error of assuming there can only only be one fulfillment, but to look for and sift the wheat from the chaff in any given perspective on on the book.
1: Yeah, and before moving on, the view that that is most similar to these things, which, by the way, we're not saying is the right view to adopt, uh, but is similar to something that's called historicism, In the study of apocalyptic literature, it means that if we're all going to be situated inside the story of God that's revealed by apocalyptic literature, we should expect to see those kinds of events happening. So to go, do we have oppressive human empires that are promoting their own security and economic well-being over all of the nations and over all other human values. Yes, we do. We do have oppressive empires that are acting like beasts. More on this in just a minute, but to go, what's helpful in reading that way is that you do look for, man, what would that look like in my time? But you don't want to overdo that, and think that these don't correspond to history as such at all, because they definitely do. They relate to a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end.
0: Hmm. An important point, I don't want to neglect the header of the error of assuming there can only be one fulfillment, is that here's, here's how I think of it. Many prophetic images and types have repeating fulfillments throughout history, and then I think they all have ultimate fulfillments, in the story of God as well. That's, that's my personal view on these things. So with the, the spiritual type of the Antichrist, we have uh, Nero as the first Antichrist. But then soon afterwards, we have John of John, First uh, John, Second John, Third John, referring to false teachers in the church as being Antichrists, as having the spirit of Antichrist. So already we see that there are more fulfillments and he's not specific in, uh, as to us as to who they are we simply know to look out for this type of Antichrist. Okay, so moving on to error number two, I describe this as we read the prophetic literature too literally. And I find the word literal to be a very interesting word. I challenge you to come up with a concise definition of it. Um, Philosophically, I I want to put the word so-called before that word, literal. But in this case... Let's again take the symbol of 666. Actually a better a better image is the there are these creatures in the in the book of Revelation locusts with like women's faces and lions' manes and scorpion's tails. I might be messing up the the specifics. Um, and so we read about these monsters and we assume, oh, at some point or maybe somewhere in the bowels of the earth there is there are there's this this hive of creatures that will at some point be released and fly around.
1: I'm sorry, but The place that people just go craziest with literal interpretation, and it's kind of weird. It it seems to be more often with dates and times Mm -hmm. than with locusts, with scorpion tails. I, I don't even know how many books and sermons or even websites I've seen that are like, we've laid it out. We've added up the numbers and subtracted the necessary material. And here is the concrete time frame but then they'll often change interpretive strategies and go, and what that means is that Russia is going to come down and invade Israel. And go, Russia, because in the book of Revelation, it's this like giant king from the north. So that part gets to be too symbolic and the other part gets to be too literal.
0: And I, I guess some of that is understandable. It's It's challenging work to apply to our lives. It's perhaps, it's one of the most... Uh, challenging books of the whole Bible. And so we're not saying this judgmentally. It's just an error that we are prone to.
1: Right. And let's just say from the pastoral perspective, when we read too literally, what we miss is the opportunity to see ourselves in the story of God And, and to actually let these images be both convicting and comforting Let's go back to the good old-fashioned mark of the beast, the 666. Now, it's beast, it's Nero. It's also the anti-shema, right? Where in Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9, the people of God are told to tie the law of God as symbols. This is uh, Deuteronomy 6, 8. As symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. This is a way of uniting yourself in an intimate way with the story of God, of putting your foot down and saying, this is the story I'm going to live. What's helpful when you read that symbolically without looking for immediate iterations, what does that look like in my time, is it lets a person answer the question, what story have you bound yourself to and how do you know? And go, have you tied yourself to one of the stories of this age, to a story of progress? And you know that because of the books that you do and do not read, the publications you do and do not read, the subscriptions you have. Have you tied yourself to the story of your family? Lots of families have very robust individual stories and definitions, we are the, I'm gonna make up like a Dr. Seuss family here, you know, we are the clockses. And <laughs> the clockses are independent and strong and they can weather anything. And the way that I know that I'm being a clocks right now is that I'm working late nights and I'm not asking for help and I know that I'm doing it and go, wow, it, it sounds like your allegiance may be mixed, and that you're also serving your family and believing its story, and I can see that in the way that you're spending your time. So when you read extremely like, where I'm looking for the number 666, I'm looking for marks on people's bodies, which, by the way, we're not saying you should never look for those things. Uh, But what you don't get is a good conversation on what allegiance means, what the story you're believing means, and how to look for it, which is a really important thing, even in the culture of a church and a family, to be able to do.
0: Yeah. So you're saying that there is a cost to reading the prophetic literature too literally, um, that we act like we do so not only at the risk of like technical error, let's say, but also at the risk of missing out on the formative effect it should have on our own spiritual lives. Another great example of that, another Old Testament instance of the number 666, is it's the number of talents of gold that Solomon had. And this, uh, this number is dropped at a pivotal moment. Prior to that, we have this kind of beautiful story of Solomon asking for wisdom at the right time instead of for wealth or for um, power and so on. And his, his story basically peaks at this number, uh, at, at this, this triple six number of the amount of, uh, of talents of gold he had. And it might not be talents. It might be some, some other m- measurement. But the, the point is that after that, is, um, that, that begins his decline. And, uh, and, and if, if we look at all the things that led him astray, we can draw devotional benefit from, from meditating on this and thinking, to what degree am I worshiping the God of Mammon? rather than faithfully following Jesus in the way that he calls me. To, to what degree is my hope in earthly riches? To what degree am I sympathetic with empire versus sympathetic with the weak and vulnerable and so on? So yeah, yeah when, when we interpret, interpret these images too literally, we miss out on, on, let's say, their devotional benefit. But on the other side of that coin, we have committing the error of interpreting them too symbolically. And Let's stick with the 666 number. So this error would look like, because I know everything that Blaine just described, that there's devotional, spiritual, metaphorical, um, moral you know uh, meaning, significance to, to these images, therefore I simply dismiss all, let's say, material or li- uh, literal fulfillments of these things. So a, re- a really stupid example would be, no, you can't say that Mao or or Stalin, or Marx, or Hitler were antichrists because the idea of antichrist is symbolic. No, they were all definitely literal antichrists. And here's an, here's, here's another one for your consideration, sticking with the 666 concept. Committing this error of reading, reading the symbol too symbolically, you would say, oh, well, I know that the 666 refers to... Uh, being sold out to demand and aligned with Empire, something like that. Therefore, when you show me, Anthony, the the patent that Microsoft filed for um, a method of, of applying biometrics to earn cryptocurrency, and that patent number ends with 060606, it is foolish of you to assume that would have any relevance to the biblical concept because it's purely symbolic and you're just digging around for literal interpretations.
1: Yeah, we're going to throw that one into the show notes and I'll use maybe the most conservative, like wet fact checker website, but going, no, it's. I love this one that says, it doesn't reference injectable microchips. It is true that Microsoft has a patent application with the number 060606 but it's for a system which rewards physical activity with cryptocurrency. I go, yeah, 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 that's bio-tracking labor. That's not calling pay a reward is a nice and clever turn of phrase, but it obscures rather than clarifies the concept. And, and this is important too. We are talking about something more than balance. We're talking about something beyond balance. We're talking about wanting to read the revelation of God with Jesus Mm. and to know that abstract things will become concrete in our time and that, yep, this is it. Revelation depicts all of history between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Christ. It's possible that it depicts even more. However, for many reasons, those symbols do culminate. If Jesus is going to come back, and he is, it's a real historical event, there's going to be a final mark of the beast, whether because it's the ultimate one or it just happens to be the last one before he comes back. I think the jury for me is out on that. But these symbols do show up. I think that the risk would be to freak out when you see them rather than seeing them and using them as an invitation to try to see your times the way that Jesus sees them. So to use the Microsoft patent again, should that cause you to reflect on your own use of currency, cause you to reflect on the spiritual significance of the digital monitoring of all human life? Yeah, it it really should. Because taking ownership of people who only belong to God and are image bearers of God is a very bad thing to do. Reading too symbolically inclines toward agnosticism. I think that ultimately it makes a person say, we can't really know what's going on right now. We can't really read our time. And We go, well... We know that if we were to read our time rightly, we would have to read it in love. We would have to read it according to Jesus. We'd have to read it in kindness and long-suffering and willingness to serve enemies. But there, is certainly go- there are certainly going to be features of our time that are recognizable, that help a person orient themselves to Jesus.
0: We are not going to, in this episode, get much deeper into the book of Revelation than to say, if you read it um, in the ways that, that we just recommended to you, hopefully you will find it to be more beneficial to your life with God. Read it with Jesus. And do read the book of Revelation. It is the only book in the scriptures that begins with the promise of blessing to those who read that letter. If you read this book, you, you will be blessed, is what, is what John says. And you can read it with a childlike belief that it is full of good news for you, because you are hidden in Christ, because you are sealed with the seal of adoption, the promise of salvation in the Holy Spirit.
1: Yes, read it with Jesus. Read it knowing that it situates human history inside reality, inside God's salvation project. And you can look for what it would mean to be caught up in that project, but I suspect that for many people, and this was certainly true for me for a long time, before I could come back and find Revelation to be really encouraging, to be a book that stoked my love for Jesus, I had to look other places to go... What is God up to? What is the story? What's going to be restored so that I would actually know the story that was being testified to in the book of Revelation? And I suspect that for many of our friends listening, that will be the starting point before diving back in to go, what does this really say? And it goes, well, it really says that the Bible is trustworthy and true and that God is coming back for his people now. Who that God is and what he's doing is laid out in a wonderful way in the rest of that whole book, meaning the rest of the books of the Bible. So that may be more helpful in the immediate future. But the dive into Revelation doesn't answer yet the beginning question of this podcast, which is guns and crypto and what a person does. How do we get there? What are the kinds of things that we think a person should be doing if they are living in an apocalypse?
0: What we do primarily, or first at least, is pray. We agree with the promises of God. We agree with the cry of the church, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In that perspective that I recommended for reading the book of Revelation, the childlike um, belief that it's it will be okay, that it will go well with us, and that belief founded on Jesus, and the person, and work, and death, and resurrection, and ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to adopt that perspective. Anytime that you look out and see the world crumbling, anytime that you, that that the question of, is this the end, comes up, we encourage you to hide yourself in Jesus, to develop in your imagination an anticipation of resurrection, and to find comfort in the idea that Jesus is, is returning. His judgment is good news. He's going to set things straight. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to rescue.
1: Yes, this is the work of Jesus. It's so helpful to give an example of an apocalypse, a time of revelation, and of a really hard time. This is a story that we actually wrote about on Platform that I worked on for 10 years over at Ansons. And it was a story of in 2015 when Russia invaded Ukraine and there was this grudge match of a war. They invaded Slavyansk. And in that town, there was a pastor, Peter Dudnik. And he was experiencing betrayals, propaganda, people killed in the street, all kinds of grudge match, terrible societal fallout. And to cut a long story short, Peter, as he was praying, was asking God what to do. And they had these rickety church vans, and they started evacuating people. Just by the direction of God, they started moving people out of the city. And in the end, they evacuated 10,000 people. We'll post the link to the article. You can read the story. It's so crazy uh, in the show notes. But Peter had this line when he said, in a time of crisis, your question is not how do I survive, but how do I display the glory of God? And what's visible in that story is the reality that hard times magnify forces we experience every day. They're not new. They are more intense. They turn up the dial on the oppositional forces. And they turn up, let's say, the contrast between the people of God and the world. She takes us back to the guns and crypto conversation. And you said, for what? Which is a great question. And it goes, who are the people that God has given you to love? Who are the people you're praying for? What are the places that you want to see restored? Who are the people you want to see rescued? And then, yeah, is there any invitation from God to move your resources more into alignment with that mission, which could ostensibly look like either of those things, but in neither case would it look like the kind of reactive fear that the world sells so successfully. So our encouragement here is that you're not too late. It is a great time to become deeply rooted in the love of God. And... We're all about recovering how to do that. How to live in the end times has been the question of the church from the beginning. How to take on the nature of Christ to be able to spontaneously respond to any of the crazy situations or pieces of information you may encounter is one of the questions of the church from the beginning of time. And it's like, yeah, we pattern our lives to experience more of God. We explore the old disciplines of prayer and solitude and fasting and feasting and fellowship and song. We talk about art and ritual and music and all of these things to go. What you do in an apocalypse is take on more of the nature of Jesus, who is available so that what is revealed when you are tested is Christ. And as abstract as that can sound, It boils down to these little decisions that I'm finding myself having to make all through the day, which are sometimes just the short prayers of, Jesus, help. I feel the pressure of the times. Jesus, help. Or to be attentive to, I love the story that you told when we were talking before this recording of Jesus telling you, I've told you time and time again to go to the mountains to restore your soul You usually don't listen, but I'm still telling you right now, go to the mountains to restore your soul. And it worked. I mean, I want God to help me with whatever problem I'm treating as important at that given time or to tell me how many cans of Campbell's soup I need. He's really not interested in those questions. He wants it it to go well for me. And Jesus is the only one who knows what the future holds. And what he's telling me to do is to be rooted in love, to take walks in nature, to pray, to text my friends for prayer, to keep the work of Christ between me and the spiritual powers of this world. Those are the only things that are helping.
0: That's so beautiful. Anytime that I hear the way of Christ, the way of God's people laid out, I just feel deeply full of warm fuzzies, deeply full of like profound joy. You've been living your entire life in the end times. Whether or not. Blaine and I are right that we're at the end of the end. Uh, either way, you're in the end, and Jesus is being revealed. So simply, following in the way of Christ and living life in the context of church is what you do When the, like in an apocalypse. The life of the church, sitting around a table even, is a prophetic image to the world of what's to come on the other side of Jesus' return upon resurrection. Our life together is a prophetic image of the resurrection, and it's heaven on earth. It might not feel like that every day because we're sinful and we're broken, and Jesus has solved that with grace, with forgiveness, with restoration, with redemption, with his own life.
1: And if even after all of that, some fear lingers around the concept, or some anxiety... You can actually treat that as a wonderful invitation to pray and to intercede. There's actually, I I meant to mention earlier, understanding apocalypse as revelation and testing under revelation will really help you understand a couple lines from the Lord's prayer, lead us not to the test but deliver us from evil, is a wonderful prayer for mercy because it kind of asks for two things in the same way as it goes Don't draw me into the testing. I know how that will go for me. I simply want you to deliver me from evil. Now, it's okay to be revealed by God, to have him test unto purifying a person and drawing them into life. But that prayer actually also goes for the world. Because we don't sit here and go, oh man, the world is entering an apocalypse. People are so crazy. And then shake our heads. We know that people are going to be feeling the pressure. It's okay to pray for them like this, to go, Jesus, I see what is happening to the human race through COVID. I see what is happening through humanity, through the emergence of the global police state, through continuous surveillance. I just see that it's bad. I ask you to intervene. I pray that you bring many people to salvation, without so much suffering. You can make the end of history merciful, Jesus. In fact, you want to. I pray that simply, mercifully, you reveal yourself to people without suffering. That you cover even those who deserve harm and bring them understanding and repentance. Bring them the way of the life of Jesus. Bring them healing instead. And for our people, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I know that I'm actually instructed to pray for mercy, that it's that whole thing, that it's not in winter, that it's not on the Sabbath to go. Jesus, how I want it to go and how I move in prayer actually influences how the apocalypse that we are living in goes. So I pray that you ward off the worst of it that you get every benefit of revelation, that people see you and love you and come into your kingdom, and that you do it, Jesus, without catastrophe, without destruction. You, it is possible to avoid those things. Don't let humanity blow itself up. Let it be merciful instead. Let there be a rising up of the church, of the people of God, without the oppression that is usually the precondition for a revival. I pray you just give us a revival, Jesus. Amen.
0: This is the answer to the question that often gets asked. So is the Christian perspective that it's just, it is just going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back, and therefore we should be fatalistic and um, ultimately actually nihilistic about all the evil that we see in the world and we should hunker down, we should hide away in bunkers and so on? The answer is no. And because our prayers actually change reality, because prayer is stewarding and shaping reality in partnership with Jesus, we can actually have an influence on outcomes, on how well or bad it goes for people. I was praying a similar prayer back when COVID first hit over my city because I could I began to see the spiritual significance the the spiritual warfare surrounding this subject and of course just the the risk, especially early on of the of loss of life and and so on. Uh, I just prayed Lord have mercy on our city Lord have mercy Lord, please limit how much destruction comes to our city to our state to our country to the world, mostly because I can wrap my head around it. I prayed for my city. And it reminds me of what God, what Yahweh says to Jeremiah in uh, in chapter 29. It's a very famous and important passage. He says, This is what Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. The the question posed by some of those headlines earlier in this conversation, uh, should we have babies in, in a global apocalypse? is very personal to me, and it's a question that I thought about and that my wife and I talked about, and we're, and she's currently pregnant. I almost said we, but that annoys people. She's currently pregnant. And so I feel, I, I feel that question, and I'm, sure I'm sure you do too. The, the answer from God is to go on being the church, go on following in the way of Christ, go on uh, giving your sons and daughters in marriage and stewarding creation, uh, fulfilling the mandate until he comes. I want to give you a prayer, and it's actually a blend of three of the oldest, most time tested prayers of the church that we'll just kind of wrap into one. And then we'll close with the words of Paul. The word Maranatha is Aramaic for come, Lord. So pray this with me Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. And finally, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to end with the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15-23, through 23, because he prays a powerful blessing over the church in Ephesus. And he asks that God would give them the spirit of apocalypse, the spirit of revelation. So here goes. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and apocalypse and the knowledge of him. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way.
1: Friends, thanks for joining us for this episode. MountVigil.org is the website where you can sign up for the newsletter, where you can support the work, where you can read the blogs. There is more to be found. As always... We would appreciate it if you would tell someone who you think would benefit from this podcast, from this show about it. This will spread exclusively via word of mouth because we are not going to use social media, a devil to cast out a devil. We will see you two weeks from now. And until then, hope it goes well for you.
0: God, I wonder why this marriage even goes.
1: Lord, he but he's coming back for me. Lord, he